Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Angle on Producers. As always, I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. However you found the show, I am so glad you're here, tuning in, doing this life thing with me, just keeping the conversation going. I'm so thankful, so grateful to you for continuing to be a part of this journey with me. I set out to do this show to be a conduit for these conversations and offer guidance that I wish I had, frankly, when I was starting out. And it's always a treat to hear from you guys and know that the show helps you in whatever way that it is meant to help you. It's truly why I do it. So in this season of gratitude, I just wanted to express my gratitude to you. This week on the show, I am so excited to chat with Carolina Garcia, who, of course, has one of the most beautiful names of all time. Um, She is the director of original series at Netflix, and she's just amazing. Her fancy job and title aside, she's truly a delight of a human and has a spirit so magnetic, you just want to drink all the wine in the world with her. Seriously, like we couldn't stop talking, as you'll notice from the length of the episode. In her current role, she oversees shows such as Stranger Things, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, Atypical, Raising Dion, and the upcoming Echoes from Brian Yorkie, and many, many more shows you will soon come to love. I simply adored my chat with her, and I hope you will take away as much as I did. Pato drops amazing gems, such as why she does not consider herself a producer, how to not be defined by your job, And we, of course, talk about the good old imposter syndrome she felt when she embarked on her Netflix journey. So without further ado, here is Carolina. I'm so excited to have you on. And I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you the most obvious of questions, which is, what's it like to have the most beautiful name of all time? (laughs) Well, um, you might know a little something about it. (laughs) I've actually like just come to not just but in my adult life I'm like oh my gosh what a beautiful name we have Uh, growing up I don't know if you got this a lot but it was a lot of Carolina yes ma'am why do you pronounce it like that and so I I always was like gosh why can't I just have like a Jessica or a Sarah like the most American name and now I'm like oh my gosh I'm so glad that I never said that out loud because I love my name so much. Yeah. I think Carolina is a beautiful name. I also had to have my own reckoning because in Brazil, like, you know, I don't know how it is in Argentina, but mm-hmm. nobody calls me Carolina unless I'm in mm-hmm. trouble. They call me Caro, Caro. Or, Ca- or Caro, which yep. in English is Carol. So for many years of my life in high school, I went by Carol, which is like so yep. weird now. I still have friends <laughs> from that time of my life who call me Carol and it always throws me off. So like yep. when I went to college, I was like, I'm reclaiming my own name. I'm Carolina and this is the name and and now I love it. So yeah, yeah definitely biased, but I do think it's one of the best names ever. So I agree. It's so funny because all of my high school friends call me Carol. All yeah. of my college friends call me Gato and then my family calls me Gato. So I yeah. feel like we had twinning yeah. realities. Twinning realities. Well, I actually, Ka, I don't know, like in Portuguese, we abbreviate the names a lot as a pet name. So it'll be like Ka. And so from there has come Kaka, Kakinha. These are like nicknames. And so the podcast originally was called Life with Kaka, which I think is really fun and was a good time. But eventually I had to pivot because I 
wanted people to find the show and understand like what it was that I was doing. So, yeah. you know, maybe when I become super famous and people know my name more, it'll make more sense. You'll bring it back. Yeah, we'll bring it back. <laughs> it's still fun. I still use the hashtag sometimes, but I love it. Anywho, let's talk about you. I'm so excited that you're here sharing uh-huh. a little bit of your journey and your wisdom with us. I've been following you for a while. I've listened to you on other podcasts. Um, and and yeah, just total, total gift to have you oh. here sharing a bit of you with us. So tell us, oh, I'm so excited take us to, to the be beginning. Here. Yeah, thank you. Take us to the beginning of, of your journey and how you discovered this business. So I, um, I never knew that I wanted to be a TV executive. Um, it, it was something that I kind of found. I was always growing up, I was a performer. So I was always the kid that sang at my family you know, gatherings, or my mom put us, uh, my sister, I have a sister, um, and we're a family of dancers. So I come from a long line of, at the age of four, you go right into ballet. And it's just kind of like the discipline that we grew up Mm. with and that I grew up with. And so I always grew up performing, dancing, emoting in that manner. And I always thought I would do that. Um, And then cut to, it comes time to go to college and I thought, I'm, I'm going to pivot, I'm going to try something new, and then I study business. And, and I go full on into business learning, political science was a double major of mine. So, so I go into academia, and, and I was just living that life, and was still dancing, I was on the dance team and stuff like that. Um, and then it came time to think about, think about, um, like, do I, do I get an internship? What happens in your junior year of college that sets you up for success? Like there, I think every college student has that moment of like, oh, the real world is fast approaching. Like, ah, what do I do? Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I was obsessed with 24, which is a show that was on Fox. And it was groundbreaking at the time. I feel like yes. it really ages us to even know. I know it does. <laughs> Although I'm like secretly like Jack Bauer forever. <laughs> and the youths <laughs> will one day find it. Yeah. Wait, but before we get into 24, yeah. so you're born in Argentina. How, yes. how does your family like land in Claremont, California? It's such a big yes. change. So it's a huge change. So my parents, um, they've been together since they were 15 and 18 years old. My so, parents too. It must ah, be Carolina thing. Really? Yeah. Oh. Well, my dad's a little older, but my mom started dating my dad and she was 15. Oh my but God. But no, maybe so. They're about three years apart. I think it's about the same. Wow. Yeah, that is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. We might be twins. Um, yeah, maybe. Yeah. So yeah. So they, they were dating um, since forever and it was always my dad's dream to come to America. Uh, they grew up in a pretty tumultuous time politically in Argentina, um, where essentially if you spoke out against the government in any form, you would disappear. And so I think from a really young age, my dad had this this dream of America in sight. And um, he kind of saw the writing on the wall in terms of what it would mean for his future children, X, Y, Z. To be fair, I still have a lot of family in Argentina. Um so, and, and we visit often and, and they're great. But, um, but that was like, my dad was always had this dream to come to America. Uh, cut to my aunt married an American and he went to a college called Pomona College, which yeah. is in a town called Claremont. And my parents uh, waited in Argentina 
think, I can't remember if it was five or 13 years. So the whole process of, you know, wanting to immigrate and then finally getting approval um, took a really long time. And so they waited in Argentina till all of that happened. And, and then we moved right to Claremont, California, which is where my aunt and uncle lived. And they yeah. were the ones that sponsored um, my family's citizenship. And so we just kind of moved there because that was all we knew. Yeah. And that's where our family was. And um, yeah. And so, and so we just landed in Claremont, which is this cute, quaint little town of colleges. And it was a really wonderful place to, to grow up. So my parents moved here with three kids. I'm the youngest of three. And we just kind of set. How old were you? I was four. Okay. So you were pretty baby, baby. So have you retained most of your Spanish? Oh yeah. So my, um, my grandma came to visit and then never left. So she lived with us, uh, when Mm. I like growing up. So that was wonderful. And then at home, my dad, because he was, he was very much like, we're in America, we're going to learn the language, we are American. And so my dad had this rule of the kids speak to, like, we only spoke to my dad in English to this day. We only speak to him in English. Um, and then hmm. with my mom, we speak Spanglish. And so I, it, it's like, I'm sure you, do you do this too? Yeah. <laughs> but like, I, I mean, we're, yeah. we're like weird in that we do speak like mostly Portuguese when with our parents, but between yeah. the siblings, I'm also one of three, but I'm the middle between uh-huh. us. We are more comfortable in English expressing ourselves. But if we're around people who speak Portuguese, we can switch pretty easily. But with yes. my parents, it's like Portuguese is preferred, but some things just come out in whatever language it comes out. That's but right. it wouldn't say it's like, uh, like a Spanglish, you know, or I, I don't know what the equivalent would be with Portuguese, Portuguese, I guess. Portuguese, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's more just like whatever language comes out, it comes out. But yeah. my dad is pretty fluent. My dad is fluent rather. So with him as well, mm-hmm. he'll sometimes just start talking in English. But my mom still feels more comfortable in her Portuguese tongue. Than yeah. Anything I else. find it pretty incredible that um, I always say my parents were born in America in their 30s because that's when they came yeah. here. Same. Yeah. Same. Yeah. And like for them to be able to operate and exist and make a life in a country when you're born in middle age. I can't imagine. I can't imagine having the balls uh, to pick up with three small children, which Mm -hmm. we were and you were as well, and and come to a different country where you don't know the language, you don't know the culture and just gamble, take that gamble and that leap of faith. And then when it does pay off, like obviously I'm sure your parents are very proud Mm -hmm. and my parents are very proud. Like it's, (laughs) it must be so nice, you know, because it is just, it's, it's a really crazy, like I can't, I just can't imagine now that I am in my thirties, what it would mean for me to move someplace like Bulgaria and just, right not have any sense of like community there. Yeah. Right. So and I really applaud there. them. Yeah. It's yeah. something to be applauded. And and it's one thing if you move there for a job, right? It's another thing when you right. move your family from another country to give your family the life that, you know, you feel they can achieve and deserve and all that stuff. And so I just, it's, it's to be applauded. I respect my parents so much for the decision and and, and looking back, I'm like, I would not have changed a single thing of my childhood growing up because that's yeah. why we are where we are today is because right. of their sacrifice and the love that they poured into us and, and really the hard work and dedication. Like, Right. I mean, so would you say then from a young age, you saw that sense of work ethic and it influenced how you went about 
pursuing anything, which obviously inevitably led you to where you are today. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, my parents, my parents love working. They just love work. Like even though they're, my mom's about to retire, my dad is retired. They still find things to do. Right. So they, they were, they were always busy people. Um, but they really took pride in what they did. And, and, you know, when you, when you, you keep your word, And so when you say you're going to do something, you do it and you do it to the best of your abilities. And I really learned that from my dad and my mom. And it just is something they never they never taught it to me. They never said you have to work hard. They just did it. And that's how I learned how to behave myself. Yeah, it was never quite. It's a lesson now that I look back. But there were a lot of times where my dad had to sacrifice, you know, family time to go make a living to help support our family. Yeah. And I, I really respect him for that. And I know that it was really hard for him to not be able to be at everything for us. Uh, but knowing what he was doing, I'm like, man, that is so incredible. That just, yeah, like, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I think about that, about how the sacrifices that my parents made and the, the mm-hmm. fact that they didn't get to pursue their dreams. Right. So that I could pursue mine. Like right. my dad did any job under the sun when we first came to America and he didn't speak the language for many years. And he actually right. learned, he actually got his GD and learned English getting his GD. So like to, to think about that and like to go from, you know, they had pretty good jobs in, in, in Brazil, but like to mm-hmm. your point, there was just a limit on, there was a ceiling yeah. on their potential and they saw the writing on the wall for us. And even though it was yeah. really hard to leave our community and our family behind, we did have an aunt in Richmond, which is also why we went to Richmond. So nice. there was a sense of, of community there, but it was still very alienating, you know, because we were the, the aliens. And at that time there was nobody at the school I went to who spoke a different language. Like I right. was the weird kid, you know, who like <laughs> d- 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 really I was. And so, yeah. but I, but to look at it now, right. And step mm-hmm. back as an adult and go, my gosh, like, I wonder how my parents' journey would have been different if they had come here a little younger and could have pursued whatever they wanted to pursue. And, and to right. your point, like it, it has infused a deep sense of like responsibility in me, not that they ever yes. put that on me. That's you right. know, I think there's a lot of like immigrant origin stories where the parents are like, you must get good grades and go to mm-hmm. Harvard. And my parents are always like, just pursue what's going to make you happy. You know, they always were very supportive of that. And it's yep. a huge part of the fabric of why I think I've been able to come here and yep. 15 years into my LA journey thrive and find successes yeah. because of that support. So that's right. Yeah. yeah. And it's so interesting you mentioned that because I too had, I didn't have parents who were like, I mean, they said you must go to college. That was never in yeah. question, but it was never, you have to be a doctor. You have to be a lawyer. Right. It was just go, you know, do your best, do your thing. They never instilled the like, here's what you must be. Right. The path I, is this. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think I took it upon myself to say, I, I have to make them proud. You know, their my success is their success because yeah. if you consider how many generations it takes sometimes to create generational wealth. It's a lot. And so yeah. to have immigrant parents and to be an immigrant yourself and kind of create a life for yourself in, in a single generation, so to speak, is mm-hmm. really commendable. And, and I, I think we just, it just is such an honor to be my parents' kid because that yeah. like, we are just a direct product of them. Yeah, you know? I feel the same way. And so, and then speaking yeah. of being a product of their, you know, of their, of their yeah. your parents and, and working to build towards that. So then you're mm-hmm. at college 
And then yes. you're like, oh my gosh. Yes. What's next? <laughs> so then I'm at college and I'm just having a ball. Um, I loved college because that's the first time, like, it's essentially training wheels for life. Like you're yeah. in another environment, you're away from your family, and yet you still have these guardrails that keep you safe and protected from just being out in the world. Um, so I went to the, the University of San Diego and it's not, there isn't any sort of entertainment major there. It's just a, it's college. Um, and, and again, when it came time to like decide what am I going to do, it's that scary moment of, well, what do I want to do? The thing that I thought I was going to do, which was go to New York and do performing arts, that's no longer a thing. I didn't, I chose to take another path. And so I thought, okay, well, what's a, what's a good blend of those? And mm -hmm. it kind of came out of the blue of, oh, I love 24. Like, I wonder if I can get an internship at Fox. And then it happened. And, and I was fortunate enough to A, do a good job there and yeah. B, build some relationships that when it came time to apply for work, I already had that, you know, I had those connections. I had those relationships because I had proven myself in a different capacity. So for me, it was, I, I just, I went right in, I went right into 20th Century Fox TV right out of college and, and thus began my career uh, as an assistant, as most people start as assistants. Yeah. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing. I was fresh out of college. I was very <laughs> green. And I learned everything I, I, I learned everything I know uh, foundationally from my friends at 20th. And so then, yeah. I, and then I moved up in the ranks at 20th. And at the time, I mean, 20th is still a phenomenal studio, but at the time, you know, there were so many successes under their belts and I was able to be there for Modern Family, Glee, American Horror Story, just so many great times at 20th and, and working for phenomenal people and women. Um, so I learned everything. And, and then I was there for nine years. And I thought to myself one day, okay, I could be at this company for a really long time. It's a family. They are family to me. I really love it here. And also I know that if I do that, I could do this job in my sleep and where's the growth in that. And so at the time, um, Netflix had not really like they were on the, you know, they were on everyone's radar, but they were, they weren't the Netflix we know today. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like who's over there? What are they doing? What's going on over there? And I was very, very curious. I was deeply curious about the company because I stumbled on their culture deck and thought, wow, this is a really interesting universe. That and for those that don't know, will you give this like the quick TLDR on, um, on what the culture deck at what the culture at Netflix is and why it's so yes. appealing, especially coming from a very traditional studio. Absolutely. So anyone can find the culture deck, the Netflix culture deck online, which is how I found it. I just yeah. stumbled upon it. And it's a, it is essentially, it was created by Reed Hastings, uh, who's the CEO, co-CEO of Netflix. And it's a, this is how we operate. This is the type of company we are. This is how we recruit. This is how we, think about talent. This is what we believe our, you know, our morals as a company are. And it's, um, it's a, for example, one of my favorite pillars is what I call it is the pillar of freedom and responsibility. So at many companies, there are ways that you operate like it, 
you do a good job if you're sitting at your desk from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Doesn't matter what you're doing in between those hours, but that's the sign of good work ethic. At Netflix, it was like, okay, you have a big responsibility to do an, an excellent job at whatever job you're doing, whatever your, you know, your chosen job at Netflix is. And you have the freedom to do it however it best suits you. So, you know, it, it, to me, that allowed flexibility in how I operate and to find the way that, oh, this really works for me. And, and this is mm. how I'm going to best execute and excel in the workforce. So freedom and responsibility, it's, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, like, it feels like a no brainer. Um, but it really was kind of enlightening. Um, also, Netflix doesn't have, for example, uh, we don't have contracts. So a lot of entertainment companies do five-year deals, whatever, you know, two-year deals, three-year deals. And at Netflix, it's, it's, it's not that. So mm-hmm. there's, there's beauty in that. And I think that piece really scares a lot of people of like, I need the security, I need to do this, blah, blah. But for me, it felt, oh, that's kind of how like life should be. Like do this job. And right. if, you know, if you're not doing a great job, you don't just get to coast by because you have a five-year deal and or if you hate it here you don't have to feel like you're locked up for five years because you signed a piece of paper so so right. that was also something to me that just made intuitive sense of mm-hmm. yeah you it's it's a way to keep strong talent and also if you're not feeling it you know you, sh- you should find a place where you're super happy right. so there are you know and and it's a it's a pretty long deck but you go through it quite quickly um, and it just is how the company operates and how it, and it, and it really does operate in that. Mm. And I was like, is that real? It's real. So then, I mean, I've read that you actually pursued, uh, you pursued this job once you found out that there was yes. like, okay, or, or an end to the job. Cause the, the, you know, the role you're in now wasn't really the job you had initially, but Correct. talk a little bit about that. Cause I think so much of the show is the curiosity people have with, how someone gets their foot in the door, how you create that longevity, how you approach doing it in a way that actually makes someone want to respond to you instead of being <laughs> yeah. like, who is this crazy mofo, is this you know, crazy? Yeah. which is a fine line. <laughs> oftentimes. It is. Got her. You're so right. It's a super duper fine line. Yeah. I have a family motto that I did not create that my mom created. Um, maybe my grandma did, but it's tomar toro por la hasta which is grab the bull by the horns. So when I got my my first internship and then my job at 20th, I didn't know anybody. And so right. for me, it was a bit of a cold call. It was a bit of a, you don't know me, but I'm really curious and interested in what you do. Would you mind sitting with me for 20 minutes so I could just pick your brain? And my approach was of, I really admire what you do. Talk to me a little bit about it so I can learn. Mm-hmm more than I want a job, please get me a job. Oh my God, hire me. Cause I know I'll be great here. Um, right. So for me, it's about that. I think, um, if, yeah. So when I, when I did the 20th thing, I did the same thing and you just kind of meet people on a more human level when you approach it in a, in a manner of, like you said, curiosity and yeah. less desperation to please hire me because I need a job. Because if you're, sitting on the side of the company, you don't want someone who's desperate to just work there to have a job. You want the best talent and you want the best talent to be with Netflix or whatever company. And so you almost have to prove that once you get in the door. Um, 
but for me, I, and I did this, I, so I asked for informationals when I was, when I was interested in Netflix, I asked for informationals from anyone who would meet with me inside the company. And many people were kind enough to set aside 20 minutes to just talk to me about what they did, because it was, again, a, a bit of a mysterious place, this Netflix. And what are they what doing? What year was that? 2015. Yeah, 2015 is the the year that one of Netflix's first original indie film was made. It's called Girlfriend's Day with Bob Odenkirk. It was one of the first movies I ever got to be a part of the production <gasps> team for. And wow. at that time, yeah, dude. And at that time, it was like, hey, we're making this movie and it just got, they were like, great, how much do you need? And we're like, this amount. And then it was just like wired to a bank account and fold the next day. Yeah. It was like a completely different world. Yes. And then not even a year later, we did another movie called Happy Anniversary. And yeah. by that point, there was already like the infrastructure and team for production. Yes. And there was a lot more. That's when they yeah. had Prodigal and they started, you know, all of this stuff. But that's it was right. crazy just in that one year, yeah. the, the contrast of the like just exponential growth that was experienced. So that's interesting yes. that, yes, at 2015, in 2015, like nobody knew what nobody the heck knew. was going on in there right. and who was doing what, yeah. And it was still very, I say early days in the in the respect of it's it wasn't what it is today. It, yeah, and yeah. it was really cool because you got to figure it out and you used judgment and it was very team oriented. So it, it was just, it was a lot of like, you know, it was, it felt scrappy. It felt new. It felt exciting. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And so, so the, it was a lot of like curiosity. I'm sure for a lot of people, I just had the balls to have a conversation or, or ask people for their time and not yeah. everyone's going to say yes. And that's okay. You have to also respect the fact that people are really busy and who is this random person who's right reaching out to me. Now, if you can, you find a connection or some sort of link to the person that you're wanting to meet with so that it's not completely a cold call, yeah. which always helps, you know, with the entry of, um, yes, 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 yes. So I did that. And, and when I met with my, my then boss, uh, Brian Wright at the end of the coffee, he was like, I'm going to be looking for someone to come on to the team. And before he could finish the sentence, I was like, it's going to be me. I don't know what I have to do, but I'm going to do it. And I will show you that I'm the person that you're going to hire and yeah. I'll figure it out. And that was the fine line of, I really want to work here. I promise I'll do a good job versus tell me what I have to do to be the right person for this job. And I'll mm. do it. Um, because for me, it was more about that. Like, I understand that he does not know me. I understand that I, I could be, you know, but I, there was a connection to him. But um, but for me, it was a lot like, okay, I'm going to prove to you that it is that. So I and you did, and I, <laughs> you <laughs> did. <laughs> here we are. Yeah. Here you are. So then yeah. you start um, in a different part of the sect, yes. and then eventually you rise the ranks to now be the director of original series. So yes. that's five years now, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And now um, my role has expanded a bit. So now um, we partway through through my time at Netflix, we started uh, doing overall deals, which mm -hmm. is you have an exclusive relationship with a piece of talent um, and they write, produce, create whatever it is. Um, and so I am now helping to oversee a significant number of our exclusive overall deals and first look deals. So 
And so what does that entail exactly on your end? Because I think we yeah. hear a lot about, you know, first look deals and um, from the perspective of someone who has that deal potentially, yeah. but as someone who is overseeing that, what is the day to day? What are you doing? And what's the stuff that most people wouldn't know that you're actually doing versus yes. what they think, they think you're doing? <laughs> yes. Um, it's a lot. It's, it's good work. Um, so, okay. So I'll take one example of uh, the Duffer brothers who created Stranger Things. We have a deal with them and they created, write and direct Stranger Things. And so a lot of it is them making sure that the mothership is, you know, thriving and we're in production on that and all that stuff. But it's also about when it's time to start bringing in new projects and, um, and thinking about how to expand, you know, what they do, we are their person. So right. their example is Sean Levy's company, 21 Labs. Mm-hmm. Um, we have an exclusive deal with them. And they bring us pitches, ideas. We work with them to say, hey, guys, this is a really great place that we think you can create a show or do that. And then we hear pitches. Once we green light their shows, then we work with them from, you know, soup to nuts. Is that the saying? Um, yes. from, from inception to execution and making sure that it is the best version of the show that they brought us that mm. we said yes to. So it's a lot of every step of the way, making sure that the creative part of it is excellent and also that we are helping their vision get to the best version of itself. Well, how does that differ then from a producer? And then is your day-to-day with the person who then is their producer or runs, I, I not even development, but runs point on like everything they're doing versus directly relating to that, to them on a daily, you know? Yeah. So we, we talk to our, there are different types of overall deals. So the executive non-writing yeah. executive producer deals, they oftentimes bring in a writer to help shepherd a show because they're not themselves writers. Um, and then we also have deals where the the overall deal talent is a writer and that makes it that kind right. of makes it a different thing. But for the non-writing executive producers, for example, we have relationships with them where we text and talk every day because they're they do a lot of stuff that's behind the scenes and connecting and doing calls to agents and talent management and all that stuff that we also do. Um, but we are overseeing more than just, you know, this area of the world. And so for us, right, right, when right. they bring in a piece, when they bring in a piece of development that has a writer, we are in direct communication with them and the writer. So they're almost like one entity. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it is our my job is somewhat producerial, and also we are essentially the studio and network in one. So there are times right. when they come to us with a very early idea, and I say yes, like go forth and, and work that out before bringing a pitch in, or it'll be so off the mark that we'll say, you know, I don't see a world in which we're making this. So. Mm. And so do you have to take this to different groups at Netflix to also green light? Is there a committee, a green light committee, or it does all of that responsibility lay on you? So if Sean Levy comes to you and says, I want to do this, you, you, are you the person that gets to go? Yep. We're doing that. And then you tell your bosses later, <laughs> here's what Sean's doing next, you know, or yeah. is it like kind of reviewing all of the things internally and making sure, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think one thing that's really interesting about Netflix is that it is such an enigma of what it is that 
is the model since it is ever changing yeah. with with the um, what do you call it? Oh my gosh. The algorithm. Yes, the algorithm. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> are you going, mm-hmm. oh, this isn't really a Sean Levy type of project, which is more of like a manager hat, right? Or are mm-hmm. you just saying, yes, Sean Levy, the world really needs more of this right now. Our Netflix algorithm is saying this is great. And you're the type of filmmaker who can carry this. So yes, this is a marriage. Let's move forward versus if he's pitching you something completely outside the scope of what is interesting to Netflix in terms of their own goals in the next year or two, are you then the person that's like, "Eh, let's go over here. (laughs) So, so we, these are great questions. Um, So the good news about Sean Levy, for example, or any of our overall deals is they know what their brand is. And so our is to just help them do more of what their brand is because we already know people love it. Right. So in terms of green light power and green light decision-making, it's not your typical green light process. I think, and I don't want to speak for other companies, but I think at a lot of other companies, you have this chain of command where the person at the top must bless every single project you buy. Um, So we are not that company. We're also not the company where I, Carolina, can go rogue and just green light whatever I want. And, you know, so there is a, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I could like there, there's a, a deep level of trust that right. the company has in its executives. And so when I'm making a decision, I bring in other people into the mix to ensure that my, that, that I'm not the only filter making this decision. Because when you, when we invest, we don't do pilots. And so we invest in making a season of television, which is a lot of money. And yeah. we have to make sure that when we make that investment, it's hopefully knock on wood, going to result in people who give their money to Netflix every month, enjoying that thing that I'm saying yes to. And so for us, it's a responsibility of making sure that the choices we make in terms of our programming are both excellent and we've made good judgment calls and also will delight, hopefully, the world. So there is there are lots of conversations and we we take each green light seriously and we take each pass seriously because we want to make sure that at the end of the day, we're delivering to the world something that they are going to love. So it's a, you know, I don't need to have approvals from the higher ups, but I love having people's point of view. Uh, right. Really smart. Well, people. I'm sure, especially with the physical production department and, and people yes. kind of guiding you on how much money you should be spending on this season of this particular thing and where you should shoot mm-hmm. it and all of that, which makes sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so if so much of your job is producerial, then would you say you consider yourself a producer? No. Um, I, I mean, we do a lot of producerial work. Mm. I find that the, and, and I've never been a producer, so I don't know all of what producerial work entails, but I do know that there are so many producers that are just so much more in the weeds of everything and we're in the weeds and I have visibility into it. Um, but you know, there are producers who are in writer's rooms and while I've gone to writer's rooms to do things like I'm, I have to be careful that I am not buying a show and saying, okay, well now I'm going to make it what I want it to be. And you know, so I have to make sure that I'm maintaining the, this is Carol's show that she wants to make. My job at Netflix is to guide her in making the best version of her show. And also making sure that when we do green light, we are on the same page about what that show is. So that way there are, you know, there aren't those creative conversations of like, wait, we bought a different show 
what's going on here because right, 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 right. So, so while, yes, a lot of our work is producerial, it's, I am not a producer and I, 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 I find that a producer's job is to really help shape the narrative and the creative and all that stuff. And I'm here to do that as well, but I'm here to help it shape yours, not mine. Right, 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 right. Yeah, you're there to support. It's almost like if I can think of a metaphor off the top of my head, it may be disastrous, but <laughs> let's give it a shot. <laughs> like if <laughs> I believe in you. <laughs> okay, so if like there's a ship, yeah. you're the person and, and like, you know, the producer, the director, they're steering the ship, mm-hmm. the showrunners, they have the vision yeah. for what the ship is going to be. They're building the ship. What you're doing is you're kind of setting, you're looking at the entire map and you're saying, you should be taking this route over here and we're going to be there to make sure that you're mm-hmm. saying you want to travel from Europe to Cuba. So we're going to be there to make sure that like you're going to get yeah. there in one place and we're going to be there to help you problem solve. But like you have the map and you mm-hmm. guys go do it and we're here to just like help along the way. So it's more of that once you've set it in motion. Yes. Yes. Oh, that was okay. perfect. That was pretty good. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Yeah. 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 It's so fascinating because it's like, you know, you look at your title and it's so words on a page. Like, what does that even mean? Like, what is it? What is the (laughs) nuances of what you do? You know, and I and I thank you for breaking that down because I'm selfishly, like personally, very fascinated by it. And (laughs) and and important distinction, because so much of what as a producer we talk about on the show is defining producers and the the mm-hmm. sort of uprising of everybody getting a producer credit where sometimes is right. not merited and how that dilutes the value of the producer and frankly on the independent side which is very different from the world you operate in but that's where yeah. i've come from and where i feel like a lot of the 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 sort of frustration is is how it's become so given out like it means nothing and it's like well it's kind of all we have left you know um because the payouts aren't what they used to be more often than not Mm -hmm. producers on the indie side are the first people to take a lower cut of their rate to make the thing happen etc so I, i thank you for saying that because it's important for the people listening to know that while you are doing mm-hmm. very important producerial duties and you're there yeah. to work alongside the producer, you you don't consider yourself a producer. And, and in fact, executives aren't necessarily producers most of the time right. in the studio right. sense. And so, right. yeah, so that's that's really great. And so, okay, so yeah. now that you've been there mm-hmm. for five years, um, yeah. talk me through some of, you know, the, like, challenges that you have faced as you continue to grow in your career was there an adjustment period even though you were really excited to jump into a very different style of working where you had come from a very traditional model to like sort of being you know in the wild wild west yeah was there a transition transitional period and i i'm particularly interested like you know i talk a lot on the show about the hard stuff because i feel like um again mm-hmm. people can look us up and look at rmdb or look at a press release yeah. and just see the highlight reel and yep. it's not to dissuade anyone from the work it's just to inform them of the realities of the lifestyle of what it takes oh, yeah. especially as a woman to withstand all of the bullshit to create mm-hmm. the longevity to have the kind of career where yeah. you can have nine years here five years there and still be very young and at the very beginning of what you're here to do you know yeah so very yeah. long-winded question, but <laughs> I'd love to just hear about whether in that transitional period or maybe in the past five years, you know, some of the the hurdles that maybe you have faced and how you have overcome them. Yes. I love this question. Um, so, yeah, I think there is 
first of all, I was terrified. I was terrified to start a Netflix because anytime you do something new, there's always, especially if you've been somewhere for a long time, or if you're even, this is not my case, but if you're changing career paths and you're diving into something new, there is always that question of, can I actually do this? Like, are they going to figure out that I didn't know what I was doing and they hired me yeah. and it was a mistake? And, yeah. and so that, that real fear can either paralyze you or motivate you. So I was very, I was very afraid because I had only ever been at one other company. So the fear of, I think they call it imposter syndrome. Mm, Yes, ma'am, they do. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) When you get to this new place and you are hit with the tidal wave of new information, people, relationships, type of work, it it just is like, whoa, what what am I doing? Um, So I think there was a lot of newness and I had, I had worked hard before, but everyone had said Netflix is a very intense company. It scared a lot of people away, but for me, I kind of ran right in. I was like, this is awesome. And, (laughs) and they said, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot, it's a different, the company operates differently. I'm like, I got it. I got it. it. I've been doing this. And then it was exactly what people said. And I was like, Oh, so just the, the very notion of knowing that there's something different than what I was doing out there was huge. I think a lot of the, a lot of the troubles I experienced were, were somewhat self-imposed. Growing Mm. up, I always thought that to be successful as a, as an executive or a producer, really just a woman in business, you had to think like a guy, be like the boys, be alpha, be all that stuff and like be really aggressive and just like that energy and so for a few years, I haven't been doing this for that, that long, but for, for a, quite some time, I thought I had to be like one of the boys. Mm. And, and again, I, 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 I molded my thinking to think, well, what would that person think? Or what would he do in this situation? Or what would he, because I would see a lot of the masculine traits being, um, those were like the, the successful traits, right? right. So it was really a reckoning for myself of saying, hold on a minute, Carolina. First of all, it's unsustainable for you to be like a dude for the rest of your life because like, I, I'm a lady. I want to be a lady. I, and then I realized <laughs> You're not like, a dude. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a dude. And then I realized, <laughs> oh, wait a minute. I think I was putting all this pressure on myself to be someone I am not. I'm just not that. And then they're hiring me because they want my point of view. And here I am trying to have someone else's point of view. Like, mm. is the, where's the success in that? And so I had to do, and this was coupled with a lot of other kind of um, coming of age Carolina things that I was going through. But for me, it was like, oh, no, 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 no. I had it all wrong. I'm being hired for my, for everything that I bring to the table. And so I have to bring me and I can't, Mm -hmm. I can't be sitting here trying to be someone else, especially one of the guys or the typical alpha male or whatever. Like, so, so that was a big turning point for me of, oh, there is a place to be soft in the workplace. There is a place to feel something in a workplace and, and own that and honor that. Uh, and I think as women, we are super intuitive. We are very smart. And a lot of times we have these internal, like we, we just know. 
And I think we have to not silence that knowing and really like bring it out and allow ourselves to, to operate as we are, if that makes yeah. sense. No, it makes total sense. I think I also had to go through that journey Mm -hmm. as well. uh, And speaking of our, you know, twinning, but like very Mm -hmm. much was believed that to be powerful and to be a person who could be assertive, you had to be this version of a very hyper masculine version of yourself. And also, I think a lot of the women who came before us, unfortunately, had to be that right, there's like, you got to be tough, and you can't, you got to hang with the boys, and you got to just deal with it. And I think for me, like, it's interesting, the Me Too movement, while thankfully um, I, I was never a victim to any of these mm-hmm. things, you know, I definitely had men say all kinds of dumb shit to me, but never to the extent of what some women have dealt with. Right. That really shifted something in me where I started to mm-hmm. realize that I wasn't really showing up for my fellow sisters, that mm. I did, ha- I was a part of the problem in the sense of like, I saw that there was only room for one and I was like, yeah. well, I'll hang out with the boys, that's where I'm more comfortable because then I can... I can be whatever version of myself, but it took, it took that shift of going, wait a minute, like I don't have to be this way to get where I'm going. And when I found how to merge both into one, because it's not about not having that because I I am that, but I was like negating a massive part Mm -hmm. of who I was as well, which is that more feminine energy, that vulnerability, that being in touch with your intuition, which frankly, to your point is exactly why someone would hire me or needed someone with my perspective and it it is a different way of working and you do bring something completely different to the table that mm-hmm. is inherently yours and that most men don't bring it's just the the, the fact you know and right. i think making peace with that and realizing that that is actually a superpower and not right. a weakness um was like massively game changing for me again internally right. much like you and it just allowed me to like breathe and it Yes. It didn't make imposter syndrome go away, but it just made it a little more tolerable, you know, That's right. myself. That's yeah. right. And I, I yeah. love that you say that because I, I believe the same thing. And I also believe that men bring a point of view that women, th- that differs from women. And that point of view is also valuable. And so for yeah. me, it's really yeah. about balancing it out and making sure that we're well represented across the spectrum we're talking gender right now, but right, you right. Know, in, in every in every way, because everyone brings a really valuable point of view that we have to honor from ourselves and and respect, and and so it it is about having that balance because you're yeah. right, women do have a superpower that we've silenced for a long time, and so do men, and like they you know they should continue to bring their point of view right. to the table. I think that it's it's interesting. Like people said, oh, you're making a podcast where you're just talking to female producers. And it's like, well, no, I, I it's not the goal. It's just I want to highlight the men that I think are also kicking ass and worth yeah. highlighting. But it's just that the focus has the light has been on those people for most of yeah. the beginning of time. It's not right. to, it's not that they don't matter and we don't want them. It's just that there's got to be a shift in focus just for a little bit. Um, and that's really what, what is more interesting to me. But like, if you look through the people I've had on, I've definitely had many conversations with wonderful yeah. men. And I yeah. also think it's important to highlight post me Too movement, like the, the men in our business who are awesome and doing great things and yeah. allies and support just mm-hmm. equality in the workplace in the sense of, like you said, like there's room for all of us and all perspectives yeah. are welcomed, you know, and that, that that's is important. Right. And, um, and yeah, yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. Um, 
So I'm curious, and in, in, in speaking of Latinx and gender yeah. and some of these these ideas, um, since we are Latinx ladies, you know, <laughs> yeah. white appearing Latinx, which mm-hmm. is a whole separate conversation for a different podcast and a different day. <laughs> but, uh, but um, yeah. you know, I mean, that, that comes with a certain set of privileges. It's not lost on me that, you know, mm-hmm. I've in certain communities, people just assume I'm American or that I'm white, yes. but in, in other communities, people are like, you're obviously Brazilian or they just can, can tell somehow. Right. Um, right. But how have you felt since the, the five years that you've been at Netflix and in light of last year and so many conversations about diversity and inclusion, which I feel like has been very much a conversation forever. There's just been a right. million panels that everywhere about this topic. And I'm like, yeah. Can we just stop having panels about the damn thing? Can we just actually do just something do real about it? So yeah. that's yeah. just my, my own frustration. But <laughs> how how have you noticed, like, the, is, has there been a big shift internally at Netflix towards this inclusion and representation um, since in these five years, but also since you started in the business? How has that shifted? Yes. So I'll speak on a personal level first, and then I'll talk on the Netflix level. Yeah. Uh, So personally for me, I'm going to be totally honest, when this whole conversation, especially about Latinos first came out, I was like, ah, like I I was so not used to leading with that Mm. because growing up, my, my dad specifically, but both of my parents were like, it doesn't matter where you came from. All that matters is how you do and the role that you're doing. And that's what you will be judged on. That's what you're value that's not the right word but that's yeah that's how people are going to see you based on your work your character how you operate in the world and the type of work that you do so so for me it was always oh it doesn't you know okay sure like the the immigrant thing when it came time to actually do the work I never led with oh I'm you know I'm from Argentina I'm a Latino like whatever it just was a side thing so when it came time to actually have to start talking about it and talk about my experience and like all that stuff. I was like, I had this personal reckoning of, Oh my gosh, why is this relevant? Let me just do a good job in my job. Mm-hmm. And, and so mm-hmm. I was super nervous about it. Cause I also think growing up, you know, my dad was like, it doesn't matter. Just do a good job. Um, yeah. so I was very, I was nervous to start talking about it. And I think I was also nervous to start talking about it because if you look at, the pay discrepancy between women and then especially Latina women compared to the rest of the world, they're not paid as much. And so then I thought, and, and this was a personal thing that I had to work through. Oh, Mm. is my value going to change in the eyes of the other people when I kind of like, I mean, you can obviously tell I'm Latina, like my name. Right. (laughs) But if you put plant a flag on it and lead with that. Yeah. Then is there a, does you know, does my, do people see me differently? And I really had to fight through that or not fight through it, work through it because then I thought, well, hold on. If, if I am not an example to young kids who have just come here from another country, whose parents are struggling to make ends meet, who don't have examples of successful, Hey, I can do that. Then maybe they don't know that they can do that. And so I have to do this. I wasn't doing it for me. I was doing it for people to, to have at least a visual of my story somewhat similar and look at her. And she didn't know anyone. She didn't grow up, you know, in this business. She didn't, she wasn't even born in this country. And yep. so, so if, if, 
if I and we can provide an example for the next generation of people to say, hey, maybe I can do that, mm-hmm. then that to me was worth whatever. And and of course, no one, it was all in my head of like, oh my God, people are going to think about me differently. Like no one, no one did, no one does. If anything, it just gives an, another data point, information point for young girls and boys to say, hey, if she can do that, maybe I can do that. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, I'm cut from a very similar cloth. So everything yeah. you're saying echoes very yeah. much over yeah. here in Glendale. Um, <laughs> in the GDL. In the GDL. It. No, it's true. I think it's like I, I never gave much thought to it myself. I think mm-hmm. for me, it was like, oh, every time there was a form, I had to fill out my ethnicity and my, my, uh, you know, I'd always just pick Latino, but like, I was never, I never understood growing up why like Brazilian wasn't on there. Like as a kid, I was right. like, oh, yeah. or Hispanic. I was, like, Where's I was like, I'm not Hispanic. And so, but yeah. for, you know, it, it was like eye opening when that became a big conversation because to your point, like I, I always thought it was important to be authentic about where I've come from. So when people yeah. are like, oh, where are you from? I can't be like, oh, Virginia or like, right. Whatever, right. you know, I have to right. tell them the whole story that I'm from Brazil and then I moved, like, I have to tell yes. them the whole, like, life story. Otherwise, That's I feel right. like I'm being disingenuous, right? Because <laughs> it is so important to, like, yeah. my journey. Um, but but never to the extent that, like, I had to, I felt like I had to lead with that. But it has right. felt like nowadays it's like, well, we need a Latinx producer on this and we need, like, everybody now has to check some type of box in it. Right. I don't know. I'm curious if how much by taking these steps forward in so many great ways, there's these minor steps back as well by having to right. now categorize everyone. I mean, I had this conversation with many friends where one right. of my good friends is a Puerto Rican writer and she's like tired of filling the quota in writer's room as a Latino writer when they're really looking for someone with a Mexican perspective. It's like, I don't have that perspective to offer, right? right? Depending on what you're telling, but her agents and her managers don't see that because they're like, well, she's just been a part of all the Latinx programs in town. So let's just submit. And then it's just been a really big point of contention. So I don't know. I wonder, it's like, can she just, her point is like, can I just go be the writer that gets the job because I'm the best writer for the job? Not because, you know, and again, I think depending on what you're writing, sure, there's like a perspective that you bring to a yes. very lens right. of an experience. But but yeah, it's a it's a really kind of like double-edged sword thing. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally hear you. And I think it, I, I do think there's a way to do this the right way. So we've now kind of cracked open the issue of representation. Yeah. And there's an awareness now that we have to do better. And right. I think the... I'll speak for entertainment, but like entertainment is like, okay, we see the issues here. Like, how are we going to make this better? Now? I think that the, the key is making sure that, that we don't slip into what you just said, the tokenism, because for us, it's like a bad outcome in my opinion is okay. So Carolina is a Latina executive and now she can only do Latino programming because that's right. all she, and And that's not a good outcome. Or it's like saying a black writer can only write black stories. Why can't, or a Latino writer can only write Latino stories. We just need to be in every room where decisions are made and make it kind of a non-thing. And yes, of course there is specificity. And in that specificity, you have universality, but a Latino writer in just a regular old writer's room that they're not looking to check a box brings a very specific texture that could elevate that project. 
And right. so I, I think that's, this is where we're at now, where we have to be very mindful of not putting people in corners because to me that really segregates the, the, like it, it, it negates like what we're all trying to do here. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. So earlier we touched upon like navigating, you know, different challenges you've had in your career and you mentioned kind of your, your sort of um, growing up in certain ways and within yourself and maturing into who you've become. But one of the things I'm personally fascinated by is weathering the ups and downs of our business. And I come at this question from a very like vulnerable place of a person mm-hmm. who has freelanced my whole adult life, who has worked in the indie space, whose worth has been tied a lot to what I'm working on and how much money I'm making, who is yep. meant, made to feel often like no matter what you're doing, it's never enough. Like you wrapped a project, doesn't matter. You should have wrapped two. Like you're never enough. Yeah. And so, you know, it's caused a lot of anxiety and it's caused bouts of depression. And I'm very honest on the show about that because somehow I've weathered those storms and I've many times considered leaving the business and finding something else that isn't Mm -hmm. this insane, you know, Um, but I keep coming back to it and I'm obviously still here. And I think it's so important to talk about navigating those really down times to get us through the other times. And it's not like it ever goes away. I still very much go through it. I think I just have better tools um, to handle it. But one of the things that clicked for me and helped me make peace with this was really um, kind of understanding that there was more to my life than just my professional identity. And while I always was going to work hard and be a hustler, like I I, start, I started to look as a producer, I'm constantly looking to the future and seeing all the problems that could exist and working backwards, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that sometimes crosses over to my personal life. So I would look yep. to the future and go, wow, if this is as good as it gets and I'm like 50 years old, but I don't have anything else in my life besides my work, like, is that enough for me? Am I going to be happy if mm. I don't have a family, if I don't have friends or hobbies or or whatever? And I panicked and I was like, oh my God, like, I don't want that. I don't want to be in my 50s having to be, six months living in Croatia, making a thing away from everyone. And I started to really focus on developing other parts of my life, like my yoga and deepening my relationships with people that I cared about. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was really game changing. And even till this day is kind of the thing that helps me like, I got to I got to tap out from all of this, like, this Uh is important. And I love it. But there's more to my life than this. And if this went away, I'd be really upset. I'd be sad. I'd be really bummed, but it wouldn't define me. I would figure out how to pivot. Right. And it was having that sense of like detachment in a way where it's like, I still care like to the ends of the earth. I mean, God, I'm doing this podcast, you know, as a, as a labor of love because I want people to know this stuff, but it really, it was a long journey to get here. And so I have these very long winded ways of asking questions. I do apologize. I love but them. It is. No, it is I, love it. I love it. But, I love but, but like, you know, have you gone through this cycle within yourself? And clearly you've been here almost as long as I have, at least within the business. You're yeah. here, you're thriving, you're full of smiles. You're like, just beam <laughs> positivity, however you do it, keep it up. Uh, like, thanks. you know, so what has that been like for you? Ah, well, first of all, preach like you, you really like, oh my God. Yes. To everything you just said. Yes. Um, I, I went through a similar reckoning of myself a few years ago. I, I had mentioned that I grew up a dancer. And so mm-hmm. when I came into the workforce, I put 
away the dancing and a little over here thing, because if you're a dancer, you can't possibly be a good executive. Or if you're a dancer, you can't possibly be taken seriously as whatever. And I also grew up singing. And that totally went into a over here thing because I was like, yeah. nope, I'm not going to be taken seriously. And you have a beautiful voice side note because I did stalk <laughs> you on Instagram and saw some performances. So Thank yeah, yeah, yeah. You. Thank you. <laughs> so, but, but I, I put that away for 15 years. So I, oh. when I graduated from high school, went to college, like she did not do any of that. And I thought like, okay, whatever. Like I don't need that. And a few years ago I was so burned out. I was about to quit my job. I was like, I can't do this anymore. This is untenable. I am, I, I didn't know, like, I was not myself. I didn't, I was, I didn't have time for friends. Uh, my relationships were suffering. I didn't have time to go on a walk outside. Like, it just was nonstop constant work. I, I just, I was like in this haze of who am I? What am I doing? And, and I had this moment where I thought, hold on. It can't be all or nothing. It can't be you give up your entire existence for a job and then once that's done, you totally quit because you're completely burned out. There has yeah. to be something in the middle. And I realized for myself, and this is different for every person, for me, I realized that I was not myself because I was not dancing and I was not singing. And it's a really scary thing to acknowledge those things because as an executive, I hire the singers and the dancers and the actors and the, that side of it. And so if I were to say, well, I also love doing this, that is a very risky proposition, especially for a woman, especially a few years ago before all these things happened. I, I, I was nervous that people wouldn't take me seriously, that I would be, people would laugh at me, people would roll their eyes. It was this whole mm. thing. And it sounds silly, but when someone has something that's really personal to them, yeah, and they've been hiding it for however long. It's almost like a coming out of the closet of, well, this is really who I am. Mm. I realized, though, in my burnout haze that that I had to do this for myself. Otherwise, I would I, a I would probably get sick because I think that you know that type of suppression manifests in physical ways. I agree. And so you so. almost have to do it for your soul. Yeah. Um, and also I realized I was so nervous about the judgment and, oh my gosh, what are people going to say about me? That Everyone is so busy living their lives. They're not worried about what I'm doing. Like yeah. whatever, you know? And, and so I, I realized in that moment, oh, Carolina, you're not the center of the universe. Stop caring so much. And then it became, well, I have to do this. And so I, I had this like coming out of the closet where I, I said, I'm a singer, I dance, and now I dance often, but I started performing again, singing-wise. And it was, again, terrifying, because what if no one shows up? What if people don't like it, whatever? But I started performing again and doing, show well, I didn't start doing this, but I eventually started doing my own shows uh, with a gospel choir, and those shows were selling out. And so for me, that piece of my identity I hadn't realized until I was so far gone in the other end of who am I? I didn't recognize myself. I was, I was so far removed from that, that I had to bring it back to that. And I had mm. to do the thing that actually brought me back to life. And that in turn made me better at my job. And it's a, I, I have a similar feeling to you of, 
the, the, you have to have a life outside of work because your work is not who you are. Right. Because there, as we've seen in the last year and a half, two years, like crazy stuff happens all the time. Things are unpredictable. And if you aren't working for six months or a year or, you know, you lose your job or whatever, that cannot define you because you're still a human being operating in this world. Yeah. And on your headstone, gravestone, whatever they are, it's not going to say, you know, Netflix executive, like we're producer, <laughs> you know, like nobody's going to care about that. At the end of the day, that cannot define who we are. And so it's really yeah. up to us to find those things that are outside of work and job that bring us to life and that fill up our cup because A, that'll make us better at our jobs and B, you're just a more fulfilled, happy human. Yes. And, and it is, and we do have to be mindful. And I think everyone has to be mindful of your job does not define who you are. And that's on both sides. Like that could be, you could have the biggest job in the world or you could be whatever, like, you know, an assistant and, and a lot, a lot of people are like, oh, well, I'm just an assistant. I'm just this. No, you're not just anything. You're a human being with work and like have your life so that you don't feel more than or less than anyone else. If that makes sense. She said it. <laughs> she said it, ladies and germs. We went there. <laughs> she did it. I love it. Like, for me, are. the podcast has slowly just become like free therapy for me. And like, I hopefully it. others feel the same. <laughs> so I love it. It's yeah, but- like, I yes, I feel seen. I feel heard. All yes. of the things. Um, <laughs> so as we wrap up, here we go. Lightning right. round on Angle on Producers. What's a song that teleports you to a happy place? Can I say two? Yeah. Okay. The first one is uh, Mercedes Sosa, Todo Cambia. Um, she is an Argentinian folklore singer uh, who just is like a national treasure in Argentina. That song Love. brings me back to my childhood. Um, so that's like my OG song. My second song, I'm going to be totally honest with you. I wrote my very first song last <gasps> year. Yes. And I, again, a terrifying thing to do, especially if you have no idea what you're doing. Um, but I wrote I a song it. called Bright Day because someone very close to me um, had to undergo emergency open heart surgery. And mm. this song just kind of like came out. And uh, it's it really is about when you're going through a hard time, understanding that it's going to be okay. A bright day is ahead. Because if we think about how often things can change and go south, things can often change and go north very easily yep. as well. So. That's the pendulum on- always swings. That's right. uh, the pendulum always swings is what I like That's to say. Right. That's right. Yeah. And so for me, that song is a reminder that it's going to be okay, honey. It's going to be okay. Just keep moving keep going. forward. Okay. Yeah. What's the last piece of art that moved you? Ooh. Book, film, show, anything. Okay. So I'm reading a book right now called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, yeah. Yes. I... I'm obsessed with it because it talks a lot about intuition and how we first feel and right, you know, first answer, right answer. So that book has been, I'm moved, but in a weird way, uh, not like emotionally moved, but I'm like, oh my God, this book is incredible. And yeah. then uh, all the light we cannot see. Incredible mm. book. Fill in the blank. When I'm overworked, blank helps ease the stress. <laughs> I'm not going to say wine. I'm going to say <laughs> that's what most people say, which is great. It's fine. <laughs> um, I always know that if I'm overworked and stressed, that is a sign to me that I have not taken a dance class or moved my body. Mm. Uh, so it's, I, I believe in like, even if it's like a wiggle in your house or something, moving that energy around physically will help 
Movement like, therapy is a real thing. Let's not even yes. get into it because again, yes. another episode for another day. What <laughs> is one of the most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And it doesn't have to be financial. Oh, for sure. Investing in what I call my soul food. So that's performance and being open about dance and singing because that that's a that's a soul investment. I love that. Okay, last and final question. Uh, borrowing from Inside the Actor Studio, which is a show yes. that I love. Um, yes. One day, maybe we'll have Inside the Producer Studio. <gasps> um, yes. This question, which was inspired by the famed French journalist Bernard Pivot. Wow. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? What would you like to drink? <laughs> I think heaven is like cocktail happy hour. <laughs> I nonstop. believe in being crazy. <laughs> yeah, nonstop. <laughs> so there's like wine, there's cheese, there's cake. And then like, if you're going to be reincarnated, then you come back after you've had a few drinks. Do you I think that in, in heaven, then um, you can drink all the wine and you only get the good part of like just the buzz and you never feel hungover. You okay. never drink too much. It's like drinking water. It just feels good all the time. Yes. This feels good all the time. They have hydration stations. So at least like in our human brain, we're like, oh, I'm hydrating and it's fine. But you just, it's like just one long enjoyment. Uh, oh my God. I want to yeah. go to your heaven and I have a feeling <laughs> I, there's a strong possibility since we have the same name, maybe there's like, they we're kind done. of group, group certain people together. So hopefully. Similar life paths. I want to know what yours is. My, my life path or my, my no, answer? What your, what's your answer to that? Oh, to the last question? Yeah. God, I mean, I want her answer to all of them, but let's do the last question. Oh, okay. I don't know. Like, there'd be some, some humor there. I think God yeah. has, like, a wonderful sense of humor. Agree. I think it would just be kind of like a, you did it. <laughs> I love it. You got here. <laughs> you know? I love that. Something love like it, that. It, it, or she or they. Who knows how God whoever. identifies? We don't know. Yes. Um, yeah. But this has been so lovely. I could literally talk to you all day. Um, Same. So, Thank you so much. Oh, my gosh. I'm, I absolutely adored talking to you. Thanks so much for tuning in and doing this live thing with me. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. I'm at Carolina Gropa. You can find the show at angleonproducers.com. Thank you so much for tuning in and I'll see you next week. Beijos. <laughs>